Hello. Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, December 29th. I'm your reader, Dagna. We'll begin with today's mini-editorial, which is written by Jim Gonsoli of South Sioux City. And Jim writes, During this special time of the year, I hope the peacemakers and the diplomats can find a peaceful way to end the war in Ukraine. Again, this was written by Jim Gonsoli of South Sioux City. And the featured donor for the Goodfellows charity uh, today is the Siouxland OBGYN, and their donation was $1,000. They are a six-physician OBGYN practice. Physicians are Paul Eastman, Tahuni Hunt, Angela Aldrich, Melissa Holtz, Hannah DeWald, and Chandler Kasuki. Siouxland OBGYN is proud to provide high-quality, comprehensive, and considerate women's health care to the women of Siouxland since 1975. And now for a, a five-day forecast. Uh, today will be a bit of snow and rain, possibly up to an inch, with a high of 36 and a low of 18. Friday will be sun, some sun and then turning cloudy with a high of 45 and a low of 26. Saturday will be mostly cloudy with a high of 39 and a low of 20. Sunday again will be mostly cloudy with a high of 41 and a low of 26. And Monday will have a bit of snow uh, maybe at night and then with a high of 34 and a low of 26. Our first story uh, from the front page is headlined, Crofton Honors Longtime Community Advocate Enid Kohlers. And this is written by Nick Hytrek of the Sioux City Journal. Crofton, Nebraska. Every small town has a handful of doers, residents involved in just about every project or organization and often spearheading new ones. Enid Kohlers calls them pushers, and for much of the 1970s and 80s, she was one of Crofton's biggest. The list of projects, many of which she is the main pusher, is long. At her urging, Knox County joined the Goldenrod Hills Action Agency, which administers several social services. She led the development of the Crofton Senior Citizen Center and the Cottonwood Villa Housing Authority, a housing project for low-income elderly residents that was the second rural housing authority in the United States. She was the first director of both the Senior Center and the Housing Authority. Collars was the developer and director of a daycare facility, developed and supervised a super summer youth program, and led the establishment of the Crofton Head Start program and a community food distribution center. She also initiated and sponsored a Young Democrats Club in Cedar and Knox Counties and was a 4-H club leader. She and her husband, Trudeau, raised eight children. In nearly every case, Collar saw a need in the community and did something to address it. This is what you do when living in a small town, said Collars, who moved to Sioux City in 1998 and now, at age 93, lives in an independent living facility. Collars was honored by her hometown Tuesday, when Crofton proclaimed it Enid Collars Day, and presented her with a copy of plaques that will be displayed at the Senior Center and the Cottonwood Villa. I guess I was a bit overwhelmed, Collars said. According to her daughter, Rhonda no, Rhoda Ganzel. She also was humble. When informed of the upcoming honors in Crofton, Collar's first reaction was to avoid the attention. 
A couple of days before you said, I don't want to go. I don't want to be in the spotlight, Gansel told her mother. Collar's civic-mindedness was impressed upon her at an early age. Growing up, she would hear stories of her grandparents taking food to the needy who camped out at the railroad tracks near their home in Wayne, Nebraska. Her parents, Bert and Ida Evans, were movers and shakers in the small community of Lindy, Nebraska, playing a role in getting phone service there and pushing for Works Progress Administration road and bridge projects in the area. So it probably was little surprise when, soon after moving with Trudeau into Crofton from their farm in 1971, Enid began to get involved once she had settled in while raising a family and selling insurance for Farmers Union of Nebraska. The idea for the senior center came from a trip to nearby Hartington to meet with a lawyer who was not in his office but at the senior center. When Collars walked in and saw all the activities available, she decided Crofton needed one too. The idea for the housing authority came in a similar fashion. We went out to western Nebraska one time and we saw all these little houses. I said, what are those? And they said, those are for elderly residents. I said, we are doing that. And so they did. On and on through the next couple of decades, Collars decided Crofton was going to do many of the same things for its residents that other communities were. She had help along the way, of course, and said many others volunteered their time and efforts to help bring those projects to fruition. Crofton is a wonderful community, she said. They are so cohesive and so inclusive. Though she would never take credit for it, some of that is likely due to Collar's efforts to make life better for the town's residents, and the many programs she helped start from scratch still exist, serving people young and old. Sometimes all it takes is a little push to get them started. COVID-19 transmission rises to medium in Woodbury County. Although COVID-19 community transmission has risen to the medium level in Woodbury County, the number of positive tests being reported has dropped. Data updated by the Iowa Department of Public Health on Tuesday shows 74 positive COVID-19 tests in the county, which is down from 140 positive tests reported on December 20th. COVID-19 is circulating in the community, along with the RSV, which generally causes mild cold-like symptoms, influenza, and other respiratory viruses. The State Hygienic Laboratory at the University of Iowa reported 655 cases of RSV in Iowa from December 11 to 17, down from 840 cases and 1,205 cases the previous two weeks. Overall, statewide flu activity was high, according to the Respiratory Virus Surveillance Report. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's COVID data tracker rates Woodbury County's COVID-19 community transmission level as a medium. That level was calculated on December 22nd using data from December 15 to 21st. Omicron BQ.1 and BQ.1 have become dominant in the United States. The CDC describes these sublineages as offshoots or grandchildren of BA5, a variant of the original Omicron lineage. When community transmission is medium, the CDC recommends that individuals stay up to date with COVID-19 vaccines and get tested if they have symptoms. Wearing a mask is advised on public transportation and when a person has symptoms, tests positive for the virus, or has been exposed to someone with COVID-19. 
Those at high risk for severe illness should also consider wearing a mask indoors in public and taking additional precautions. The CDC says individuals may choose to wear a mask at any time as an pre additional precaution to protect themselves and others. Iowa Medical Marijuana Program Grows in 2022 Iowa's medical marijuana program saw growth in 2022, both in increased patients and rising sales at the state's licensed dispensaries. As of November 2022, the number of cardholders in Iowa's program was 14,466, close to double the 7,865 enrolled patients in December of 2021, according to a report from the Iowa Medical Cannabidolio Board which administers the program. More health care providers are also certifying patients for the program. As of November, 1,920 practitioners had certified a patient at least once, compared to 1,603 in December of 2021. Lucas Nelson, the president of Bud and Mary, said the growth in patients shows an increased need for access in the state, both in the number of dispensaries and the types of products available. Bud and Mary's, previously known as MedFarm, is one of two licensed marijuana manufacturers in Iowa, and it operates dispensaries in Windsor Heights and in Sioux City. It demonstrates that there is a need for these products in the state, and there is a need for more access for people, he said. Sales at the state's five dispensaries in the last year were $10.2 million compared to $6.1 million in 2021. August 2022 was the first month in the program's history to bring in more than $1 million in sales. Nelson said Bud and Mary's Sioux City location sees about 50 transactions a day, while the Windsor Heights location handles around 300 transactions a day. A second company, Iowa Cannabis Company operates dispensaries in Council Bluffs, Waterloo, and Iowa City. The Iowa Cannabis Company received a license from the state to begin producing marijuana for the program in 2021 in Cedar Rapids before relocating to Iowa City. The timeline for that facility to be operational is May 2023, according to the report. Bud and Mary's began work on a $10 million expansion of its production operations this year because of the increased demand, and Nelson said the new facility would be operational in the first quarter of 2023. The new operation will triple the company's production. That's in preparation for where we believe this program is going to head and where we believe it should head, Nelson said. As more people get access, as more people learn about it, Hopefully, as the legislature helps with assisting us in getting more dispensaries, more product availability, we will be ready, well set up and ready for it. Nelson said the company will continue to lobby the state legislature to allow the sale of vaporized flour, which is available in several other states' programs. The change would allow dispensaries to sell whole cannabis flour that patients can vaporize. Iowa's program only allows for the sales of oral, topical, nebulizers, oil vaporizers, and suppository products. Vape products were the most popular of the forms sold at dispensaries in 2022, accounting for 66% of sales. Since flour is cheaper than the other products to produce, Nelson said the change would lower costs for cardholders and attract more patients to the program. We believe it's a safe, effective method for delivering the molecules, but most importantly, it's going to be more cost-effective. 
While the board has not recommended that change, Nelson and the board both agree that the state needs more licensed dispensaries. State law currently allows for five. It's very frustrating for us when we get calls and hear from people who would like to join the program but cannot make the trip, Nelson said. They're simply boxed out of it because we've chosen to only allow for five dispensaries. The medical cannabidiol board's report recommended removing the number of dispensary licenses from the state law and allowing the department to issue more licenses based on evidence-based demand analysis. When it comes to taxes, the board recommended exempting medical marijuana products from sales tax to ease the cost burden on patients. It also advocated a tax tweak that would allow cannabis companies to take business expense deductions for state income taxes. In a technical change, the board recommended changing the state law and by extension the program to the Iowa Medical Cannabis Act from the Iowa Medical Cannabidiol Act. Cannabidiol commonly known as CBD, was the main product available when the program started, but a 2020 law removed a THC cap on products and allowed for the sale of high THC products, but with a limit of 4.5 grams of THC per 90-day purchase in most cases. THC is the primary chemical in a marijuana plant that causes the high. The name creates confusion around the program, the report said, as some law enforcement officers and others don't know that the high THC products are legally available in Iowa. The high THC products also made up of the bulk of sales with 78% compared to 13.2% balanced THC and CBD and 8.9% high CBD. Nelson said the high sales of THC can be attributed to its effectiveness in treating chronic pain, as well as the availability of CBD online and over-the-counter in Iowa. With CBD easily available without a medical card, people joining the program are generally seeking higher THC formulas. The name change would reflect scientific reality via inclusion of all cannabinoids, mitigate confusion with program stakeholders and improve program education, according to the report. Now we're moved to some weather-related stories in, throughout the country. First, Buffalo region fears more blizzard victims could be uncovered. Buffalo, New York. The National Guard went door-to-door -door in parts of Buffalo on Wednesday to check on people who lost power during the area's deadliest winter storm in decades, and authorities face the tragic possibility of finding more victims amid melting snow. Already, more than 30 deaths have been reported in western New York from the blizzard that raged Friday and Saturday across much of the country, with Buffalo in its crosshairs. As a deep freeze eased into milder weather Wednesday and the number of lingering power outages dwindled, National Guard members knocked on doors in Buffalo and its suburbs. The county encompasses Buffalo. We are fearful that there are individuals who may have perished, living alone, or people who are not doing well, said uh, Mark Pol Polancar's Erie, Erie County Executive. Buffalo Police Commissioner Joseph Gramaglia said officers from his and other agencies also were searching for victims, sometimes using officers' personal snowmobiles, trucks, and other equipment. With the death toll already surpassing that of the area's notorious blizzard of 1977, local officials faced questions about the response to last, year, last week's storm. 
They insisted they prepared, but the weather was extraordinary, even for a region prone to powerful winter storms. The city did everything that it could under historic blizzard conditions, Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown said at a news conference. With enough snow remaining that driving was still banned in New York's second most populous city, officials worked to clear storm drains and watched a forecast that calls for some rain later in the week. Erie County officials said they are preparing for the possibility of some flooding and of ice jams in creeks. The National Weather Service said any flooding was expected to be minor. Temperatures are expected to rise into the mid-40s on Wednesday and the low 50s by Friday. Buffalo Niagara International Airport re reopened after a five-day closure, though the airport's website listed almost all scheduled flights as canceled or delayed. With suburban roads and most major highways in the area reopened Tuesday, state and military police were assigned to enforce Buffalo's driving ban. Poland cars said the goal was to have at least one lane of every street open by Wednesday evening. It is tough going. Even on some of the city's main streets, there were still cars buried in snow that were being towed away Wednesday to make way for snow plows. Southwest Airline flight cancellations continue to snowball. Travelers who counted on Southwest Airlines to get them home suffered another wave of canceled flights Wednesday and pressure grew on federal government to help customers get reimbursed for unexpected expenses they incurred because of the airline's meltdown. Exhausted Southwest travelers tried finding seats on other airlines or renting cars to get to their destination, but many remained stranded. The airline CEO said it could be next week before the flight schedule returns to normal. But early afternoon on the East Coast, about 90% of all canceled flights Wednesday in the United States were on Southwest, according to the Flight Aware Tracking Services. Other airlines recovered from ferocious winter storms that hit large swaths of the country over the weekend, but not Southwest, which scrubbed 2,500 flights Wednesday and 2,300 more on Thursday. The Dallas airline was undone by a combination of factors including an antiquated crew scheduling system and a network design that allows cancellations in one region to cascade throughout the country rapidly. Those weaknesses are not new. They helped cause a similar failure by, Northwest, by Southwest in October 2021. The federal government is now investigating what happened at Southwest, which carries more passengers within the United States than any other airline. In a video Southwest posted late Tuesday, CEO Robert Jordan said Southwest would operate a reduced schedule for several days, but hoped to be back on track before next week. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who has criticized airlines for previous disruptions, said that the meltdown was the only word he could think of to describe this week's events at Southwest. He noted that while cancellations across the rest of the industry declined to about 4% of scheduled flights, they remained above 60% at Southwest. He vowed to hold the airline accountable and push it to reimburse travelers. The other large U.S. airlines use hub-and-spoke networks in which flights radiate out from a few major or hub airports. That helps limit the reach of disruptions caused by bad weather in parts of the country. Southwest, however, has a point-to-point -point network in which planes crisscross the country during the day. This can increase the utilization efficiency of each plane, but problems in one place can ripple across the country and leave crews trapped out of position. Win a Vegas Guest Donate to Charity 
Winna Vegas Casino Resort presented four checks amounting to more than $20,500 to local Winnebago and Siouxland organizations. Active in charitable giving, the casino developed a program in which Winna Vegas guests could drop slot tickets into donation boxes placed at various locations in the casino. Guests could also donate change at ticket redemption machines as well as during auctions held at several concerts. Among the local organizations receiving donations were Winnebago QALICB Inc., Winnebago Reformed Church, Crittenden Center, and Winnebago Native American Family Association. We are pleased to help out our local charities during this special time of the year when help is needed the most, Winnebago's General Manager Michael Michonne said. We applaud our guests at Winnebago's Casino Resort for their generosity for the past few months and we look forward to supporting those in need. Winnebago's Casino Resort, located at 1500 330th Street, is owned and operated by the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska and is currently in its 30th year of operation. Opened originally as a bingo parlor in April 1992, Winna Vegas has grown over the years to become the largest gaming floor in the area. At present, its gaming floor is 54,353 square feet, has more than 767 slot machines, 10 casino table games, and features Siouxland's only bingo hall. Library announces Internet for All. A federal program will allow the Sioux City Public Library to provide 900 laptops and tablets and more than 1,000 hotspots and 5G routers to Sioux City residents for extended checkouts. The library announced in statement issued on Wednesday that it has received funding from the Emergency Connectivity Fund, a federal program to help schools and libraries address the gap for those who currently lack necessary internet access or the devices they need to connect to online resources. The cook-off event for the Internet for All initiative will be held on January 6 at the Elf's Downtown Library, 529 Pier Street, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Representatives from the service provider T-Mobile and library staff will be on hand to distribute devices and offer assistance. Sioux City residents 18 and older who have a full service Sioux City Library card in good standing are eligible to check out free internet enabled devices from the library. Updating or applying for a library card ahead of January 6th event is encouraged. Visit any Sioux City Public Library location to receive an application or update your card. Please bring a photo ID. A list of acceptable ID verification can be found at SiouxCityLibrary.org. We'll now move to the opinion page and there's an opinion column from Bruce Lear who lives in Sioux City. He has been connected to public schools for 38 years. He taught for 11 years and represented educator as an Iowa State Education Association Regional Director for 27 years until retiring. And he writes, In just a few weeks, the Iowa Legislature will convene, still glowing from holiday cheer. While that spirit is fresh and partisan fighting has not exploded, legislators have an opportunity to pass a law dripping of Iowa values. It would save lives and reinforce Iowa as a welcoming state that's truly a place to grow. Call it a Christmas gift or even a Christmas miracle. Sound too good to be true? In a normal legislative year, it is. But this year, Iowa is still sitting on $1.5 billion in the bank, and the excuse that it's one-time money and only can be used for ongoing tax cuts is growing thin as a spring coat in an Iowa blizzard. This belated bipartisan 
gift is possible by tapping the surplus to fund free breakfast and lunch for every student in Iowa public and private schools. This is the gift that keeps on giving because it will attract young families to a state desperate for workers. This is not charity, it's economic development. I can already hear the outrage machine screaming, there ain't no free lunch. It's not free, it's using our resources wisely for now and the future. I understand when the tax cuts passed last year fully kick in, they, there'll be a significant drop in Iowa revenue. But lawmakers giddy to give back also promised that our state would not go the way of Kansas, who ended up rattling a tin cup for revenue once their tax cuts were reality. Plus, if we believe the GOP, Iowa's economy will soar because of those 2022 tax cuts. But here's the truth about tax cuts. Voters have short memories. If you ask 100 Iowans if they received a tax cut, you'll see that deer caught in the headlights look. There's too big a gap between passage and implementation. If the legislature passed a law that gave every kid in public and private schools free breakfast and lunch, voters would be reminded daily. The COVID pandemic taught us several things. But one of the main lessons was that schools, even when closed, served as a community center no matter how big the town. Schools help families feed their children and survive. We can do it again. Iowa, the breadbasket of America, doesn't need a pandemic to know that children have a fundamental right to be fed. Right now, one in seven Iowa working families do not earn enough to meet their basic needs. 229 1,500 are food insecure and 80,160 are children. The unpaid debt to the school lunch program is a growing crisis. For example, in the Sioux City Community School District, the debt for unpaid breakfasts and lunches grew before the second semester began to $23,441. Luckily, the debt was paid by a Missouri River Historical Development Grant, but this was not an ongoing grant and the debt will begin again. Every veteran teacher knows hungry kids struggle to learn. That's why for years, teachers, using their own money, have hidden stashes of food to provide for hungry kids. We cannot wait for the perfect time or look around waiting for another government entity or private group to act. This is a chance to show Iowans that government works. We hear all the time from pundits that states should be the laboratory for positive change. This is a bipartisan opportunity for politicians on both sides of the aisle to show they care about Iowa's future. Representative John Lewis said it best, the hungry cannot wait, talk is fine, discussion is fine, but we must respond. And again, this was an opinion piece from Bruce Lear. We'll now move to sports with a, a high school program um, report. Pender girls, Cedar boys, Pierce boys, and girls Post wins in Wayne Holiday Tournament, Wayne, Nebraska. In a battle of state-ranked girls high school basketball teams, Pender used a big third quarter to outdistance Hardington Cedar Catholic 45-30 Wednesday in the Great Northeast Nebraska Shootout. May Dolliver scored a game-high 21 points to lead the Penn Dragons, ranked number four in the most recent Class C2 coaches poll. McKenna Knocker scored 14 points and Lauren Benecker added 13 for the Knights, ranked number six in the Class D1 coaches poll. Cedar, which fell to 6-2, led 10-5 after the first quarter and 17-16 at halftime. Pender outscored the Knights 20-4 in the third quarter to take control of the game. Hardington Cedar Catholic 
and Pen, uh, 74 Pender 21. The Cedar Boys blasted Pender in the Great Northeast Nebraska Shootout in Wayne State College Rice Auditorium. Five Knights scored in double figures. Jamison Cateau, Andrew Jones, Tylan Baller, and Nolan Becker, Jackson Bernecker. Pender, which fell to 2-7, was led by Aiden Beckman's seven points. Cedar ranked number two in the latest C2 coaches poll and proved to 6-0. Pierce 58, Lauren Con Laurel Concord Coleridge 37. Ben Brommer scored a game-high 27 points to lead the Blue Jays in the Great Northeast Nebraska Shootout Wednesday. Brommer, who led Pierce to a state football championship this fall, is committed to Iowa State to play tight end for the Cyclones. Abram Schulting added 17 points for Pierce, ranked number 5 in the latest Class C1 coaches poll. LCC dropped to 5-2. Pierce 51, Laurel Concord Coleridge 41, and this is for the girls. Skylar Schulting scored 22 points and Morgan Moeller was close behind with 20 to lead the Pierce girls in the Great Northeast Nebraska Shootout Wednesday. Haley Christensen scored 13 points, and Mallory Erickson added 11 for the Bears, who dropped to 2-5. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, December 29th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Um, we'll now turn to today's obituaries. Joanne M. Morgan, 88, of Kingsley, Iowa, passed away Friday, December 23rd at Kingsley Specialty Care in Kingsley. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday with the family present during this time along with food and refreshments at the Road Funeral Home in Kingsley. Joanne Marie Morgan was born February 26, 1934, the daughter of William and Mabel Brown Bernhardt in Sioux City. She grew up around the Bronson, Mobile area until moving to Kingsley in the late 1940s. On December 6, 1952, Joanne married Glenn Morgan. Glenn and Joanne lived in Mobile for a short time, and in the fall of 1953, they moved to rural Kingsley to begin farming with her parents and brother. When Joanne was not helping on the farm, she enjoyed and was proud of her cooking, as well as working in the yard with her flowers and garden. Joanne loved spending time with her family, especially her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. In later years, Joanne enjoyed her indoor flowers, walking her dog, and watching game shows. Patricia Patty Lou Brown, loving mother of four and adoring wife to Dick Brown, passed away peacefully in her home surrounded by family in Sioux City on Monday, December 26. Mass of Christian burial will be 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at St. Boniface Catholic Church. Burial will be at the Calvary Cemetery. Visitation was from 5 to 7 p.m. Wednesday with vigil service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. She was born December 10, 1942, in Sioux City, to parents John and Marguerite Rose. She graduated from Healand High School in the class of 61, where she met her high school sweetheart and love of her life when they were just 16 years old. She enjoyed attending classes at Briarcliff College. Patty was known to befriend any and all she met. She was first and always a dedicated mother and caregiver. 
She volunteered at hospice, and she was a donor at the blood bank. She was the life of the party and the first on the dance floor. Patty loved to spend her summers with the whole family in Okoboji. She loved New York and seeing Broadway shows. She was happiest when everyone gathered for Christmas Eve at her home. If someone had nowhere to go on Christmas, Patty Lou would welcome them with open arms and any present ready. Patty was determined to make it to her 80th Christmas and get the family together again, and to no one's surprise, she made it happen. Mary Glee Fitch, 83, of Hayward, Iowa, and formerly of Hudson, South Dakota, died on Sunday, Christmas Day, December 25th, at Hillcrest Health Care Services in Hayward. Services will be at 2 p.m. on Tuesday at Porter Funeral Home in Hudson, with Pastor Susie Larson officiating. Burial of the cremated remains will be at Eden Cemetery in June of 2023, when the family will be celebrating the 150th year of their family farm. The service will be taped and will be available on Mary's obituary page. Mary Glee Fitch was born in Hudson, South Dakota on December 27, 1938. She was the oldest daughter of Don and Mary Cole Fitch. Mary grew up in Hudson and graduated from Hudson High School in 1957. She went on to school at South Dakota State College, graduating with a degree in nursing in 1961. Mary worked as a nurse in Del Rapids, Sioux City, and Alcester. She moved to Yankton, where she was a librarian at the Yankton Community Library. Later, she moved back to Hudson to help care for her mother. She was also the librarian at the Hudson Library for many years. Mary was a die-hard Democrat in a family of staunch Republicans and enjoyed a good political argument. Kathy Sitzman, Lamars, Iowa, 69, died Monday, December 26. Services will be December 31st at 11 a.m. at Sunnybrook Community Church, Sioux City. Burial will be at a later date at Rest Haven Mem Memory Gardens in Lamars. Visitation will be December 30th from 3 to 8 p.m. at Rexwinkle Funeral Home in Lamars and resumes December 31st from 10 a.m. until service time at the church. Dolores J. Hoffland, Elk Point, South Dakota, 92, died Wednesday, December 21st. Services will be December 30th at 10.30 a.m. at the Cobra Funeral Home in Elk Point. Burial will be at the St. Paul Cemetery, Elk Point. Visitation will be December 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. at the funeral home. Linda G. Templeton, Sioux City, 77, died Wednesday, December 21st. Services be December 29th at 2 p.m. at Redeemer Lutheran Church. Arrangements with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Orville Matthew Ports, Remsen, Iowa, 88, died Monday, December 26th. Services will be January 3rd at 10.30 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Remsen. Burial will be following service at St. Mary's Cemetery, Remsen, with military honors. Visitation will be January 2nd from 4 to 7 p.m. Fish Funeral Home and Monuments, Remsen, uh, and resumes January 3rd at 9.30 at the Funeral Home. Live streams available at the Funeral Home's website. Annabelle Ann Lennon, 93, of Akron, passed away Friday, December 23rd at the Akron Care Center in Akron. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 11 a.m. on Friday at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Akron. Father Paul Jean 
Nijun will celebrate Mass with Deacon Richard Port assisting. Burial will be at the Elk Point Cemetery in Elk Point, South Dakota. Visitation with the family present will be from 9 to 10.30 a.m. on Friday at Wexwinkle Funeral Home in Akron. Following the funeral Mass, visitation will resume at the funeral home during a time of lunch and fellowship. Arrangements are with the Wexwinkle Funeral Home in Akron. Anne was born, Annabelle Margaret Harder, on November 26, 1929, to Harry Leroy and Mamie Mary Elizabeth Harder in Elk Point. She was raised and attended school in Elk Point, graduating in 1947. On June 1, 1948, she was united in marriage to Floyd Robert Lennon, and her, her inseparable partner for 74 years. She worked in Elk Point at a few jobs before working at the Union County Courthouse until they moved to Akron in 1956. In Akron, she was a stay-at-home mom for a few years before working for both veterinarians in Akron and the Akron paper. She retired in 1989, and it was Pickstown, Here We Come. Anne and Sonny spent many, many, many days at Pickstown until 2017. Sonny passed away August 5, 2022. She was a good sport who would do and try anything that kept her close to Sunny. She loved to figure out ways to get Sunny uptown for coffee. One of her greatest jobs was being able to spend many hours with her grandsons to the point of seeing them as her own children. It was awesome to see, and it formed an unbreakable bond with her and the boys. Anne was a member of St. Patrick Catholic Church in Akron. She was a sweet, kind, generous, loving, and fun mom, grandma, great-grandma, and great-great-grandma, all who knew her will surely miss her and realize that a good one is gone. And that's it for the obituaries today. We'll now move to some entertainment news and about things that could are happening here for New Year's Eve. First, we'll have, um, the first one is called, Here's to the Geeks Who Love Cheesy 80s Music. That's right, the Spasmatics will be ushering 22... 2022 out with a dweeby bang at 9 p.m. Saturday at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino's Anthem at 11, 111 3rd Street. And then uh, perennial Siouxland's Choice Award recipient Ben Grillet and the Black Bloods will country fry the marquee at 1225 4th for a New Year's Eve party at 8 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, then the horn man returns. Nowadays, trumpet player Ryan Kaiser is best known for his work at New York's Jazz at Lincoln Center, but he has never forgotten his Sioux City roots. Kaiser is coming to Vanguard Arts, 416 Pier Street at 8 p.m. Friday. And then the next one, Madison Avenue isn't simply a street in New York. It is also a Sioux City-based band headed by Madison Zeller. See Madison and her crew at 8 p.m. Saturday at Beer Can Alley, 1109 4th Street. And then, well, we don't mind the dirt if it's the Red Dirt variety. Red Dirt Road will be playing the New Year's Eve show at Doc's Warehouse Bar at 1219 5th Street at 9.30 p.m. on Saturday. And then the last one is get the kids out of, well, this isn't necessarily a New Year's Eve party one. This is get the kids out of the house from some cold weather fun. The Dorothy Peacott Nature Center at 4500 Sioux River Road will host a winter break camp at 10 a.m. on Thursday. And then we have a story about a new downtown bar creating one-of-a-kind cocktails. 
A green room is the place where entertainers chill before and after a performance. The recently opened green room at 1227 4th Street is where patrons can chill between shows at the Marquee, which is next door at 1225 4th Street. Actually, the green room is a pretty cool place anytime, owner Mitch Martin explained. There are times when you want a place that is more intimate. The marquee can be a bit noisy. Then, the green room should do the trick. Adding to the green room's club cool vibe is a cool stereo setup with Martin's own personally curated collection of vinyl records. I'm in the mood for some queen, he said, as Freddie Mercury crooned somebody to love in the background. We have a... BYOV policy around here. If you don't like my musical taste, feel free to bring your own vinyl. Another thing that guests will want to bring to the green room is appetite. Hot off the grill will be regional hot dogs from sausage-friendly destinations like Detroit. A Nathan hot dog topped with onion, cheese, mustard, and coney sauce. A spicy Chicago a Nathan dog loaded with mustard, relish, onions, peppers, tomato wedges, pickle slice, and celery salt. Or a Houston, a Nathan dog jam-packed with sriracha ketchup, caramelized onions, sautéed breadcrumbs, and yum-yum sauce. Pizzas, or what the green room calls pizzazz, come in some varieties as traditional, which is pepperoni, hamburger, and a homemade sauce. Barbecue chicken chicken, barbecue sauce, and, and onion, and the Mitch Slap special, pepperoni, hamburger, onion, cream cheese on top of Martin's homemade Mitch Slap sauce. Perhaps most unusual pizza is a Spamalot, which has the homemade Mitch Slap sauce, onions, pineapple, and you guessed it, Spam. I think people will like it, Martin said. Note, we may need a cocktail or two before chowing down on Spamalot pizza. Luckily, the green room has some creative drinks that pay homage to music world icons. If Aretha Franklin was the Queen of Soul, the legendary Gladys Knight was often called the Empress of Soul. The Green Room's Empress of Soul cocktail and contains Empress Gin, lime juice, simple syrup, soda, and something called a buzz button. According to Martin, a buzz button is the flower of an Oleracea plant. Bite down on the buzz button and your mouth becomes numb, he said. Genesis frontman Phil Collins is name-checked with the Raspberry Phil Collins. It contains Hendrix gin, raspberry syrup, lemon juice, and soda. Plus, you don't need to know the words to Another Day in Paradise to order it. We sampled the Smoke Old Fashioned, which is made with bullet, bourbon, simple syrup, and orange bitters before being smoked with cherry wood. Our verdict, Old Fashioned, was expertly made. Infusing it with the smoke of cherry wood gave it a nice, toasty taste. Martin said it was a race to the finish to open the green room before the end of the year. Former tenant Woody's axe throwing moved out in September. We came in October and went into remodeling mode right off the bat, he explained. Indeed, it is hard to imagine the quaint, cozy, quaint green room was once the place where axes were thrown for an evening of fun. We wanted a December opening and got one. Martin said, we may have been nailing things down a few minutes before opening, but we made it. What are some things that Martin learned during the planning stages of the green room? Painting every wall green is not a good thing, he said. That makes sense. The rusty red accent walls give the space less of an Elvis and the Graceland's jungle room feel. Other than that, the initial reaction to the green room has been overwhelmingly positive. There are certain times when you're in the mood for the marquee, Martin said. The green room is for those times when you'd like to have a conversation, sit back and chill to some great music.
More important, you don't need to be a celebrity to get a table in this green room. Just expect some great food, creative cocktails, and some cool vinyl playing on the record player, Martin said. We'll now move to a business story. Tesla stopped reporting its autopilot safety numbers online. Like clockwork, Tesla reported autopilot safety statistics once every quarter starting in 2018. Last year, those reports ceased. Around the same time, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the nation's top auto safety regulator, began demanding crash reports from automakers that sell so-called advanced driver assistance systems such as Autopilot. It began releasing those numbers in June, and those numbers don't look good for Autopilot. Tesla will not say why it stopped reporting its safety statistics, which measure crash rates per miles driven. The company employs no media relations department. A tweet sent to Tesla chief executive Elon Musk inviting his comments went unanswered. Tesla critics are happy to speak up about the situation, however. Taylor Ogan, chief executive at fund management firm Snowball Capital, held a Twitter Spaces event last Thursday to run through his own interpretation of Tesla's safety numbers. He thinks he knows why the company ceased reporting its safety record, because it's gotten a lot worse. Also last week, NHTSA announced it had added two more crashes to the dozens of automated driving Tesla incidents that it's already investigating. One involved eight vehicles, including a Tesla Model S, on the San Francisco Bay Bridge on Thanksgiving Day. Through Friday's close, Tesla stock has lost 65% of its value this year. Ogan, using NHTSA crash numbers, Tesla's previous reports, sales numbers, and other records concluded that the number of reported Tesla crashes on U.S. roads has grown far faster than Tesla's sales growth. The average monthly growth in new Tesla since NHTSA issued its standing order was 6%, he figures, while comparable crash stats rose 21%. The Tesla Autopilot crash numbers are far higher than those of similar driver assistance systems from General Motors and Ford. Tesla has reported 516 crashes from July 2021 through November 2022, while Ford reported 7 and GM 2. To be sure, Tesla has far more vehicles equipped with driver assist systems than the competition, an estimated 1 million. Ogan said about 10 times as many as Ford. All else equal, that would imply Tesla ought to have an NHTSA reported crash total of 70 since last summer to be comparable with Ford's rate. Instead, Tesla reported 516 crashes. Tesla's quarterly safety reports were always con controversial. They did put Tesla all upon it in a good light. For the fourth quarter of 2021, Tesla reported one crash per 4.3 million miles driven in cars equipped with autopilot. The company compared that with government statistics that show one crash per four, 484,000 miles driven on the nation's roadways for all vehicles and all drivers. But statisticians have pointed out serious analytical flaws, including the fact that the Tesla stats involve newer cars being driven on highways. The government's general statistics include cars of all ages on highways, rural roads, and neighborhood streets. In other words, the company Comparison is apples to oranges. None of the statistics, Tesla's or the government's, separate out autopilot from the company's controversial full self-driving feature. Full self-driving is a $15,000 option that's more aspirational than its name implies. No card being sold today is fully autonomous, including those with uh, full self-driving. 
Autopilot combines adaptive cruise control with lane keeping and lane switching systems on highways. Full service driving is marketed as an advanced artificial intelligence technology that can cruise neighborhood streets, stop and go at traffic lights, make turns onto busy seats, and generally behave as if the car drives itself. The fine print, however, makes clear the human driver must be in full control and is legally liable for crashes, including those involving injuries and death. We'll now move to Dear Abby, our first letter. Dear Abby, I have always been an outsider in my family. My grandma raised me because mom was an alcoholic and ran the streets with her boyfriend. My grandma died three months ago and I have been had a hard time dealing with it. My mother has moved into my grandma's house and wants me to come visit her. This is a problem because everywhere I look, it reminds me of my grandma. I have told her this, but she thinks that since she painted and decorated it differently, it should not be a problem for me. I am the only child who has anything to do with her. She gave up my oldest sister. And she uses guilt when I don't come out and help her clean or go grocery shopping for her. I was raised to believe that we should take care of our elders, but I still have issues with her not being in my life growing up. I don't know how to handle this without just refusing to go. What should I do? Signed, Conflicted in Missouri. Abby's response. Tell your mother the truth, just as you related it to me. Explain that although she may have painted and redecorated the house, seeing the place without your grandmother in it is depressing, and you are no longer willing to do it. And the next time she asks you to help her clean or go shopping for her, say no and tell her why. Unless you have left something out of your letter about your relationship with her over the last decade, I don't think you should feel obligated to her at all. Dear Abby, my father-in-law, 78, was a caregiver for 10 years before his wife died five years ago. After her passing, he eventually renewed his zest for life, joined clubs, and found a girlfriend. His health challenges have mounted during the last two years, though, and he no longer has the energy to follow up on medical appointments or do much of anything. My husband and I call him every day and visit three or four times a week. His medical issues can be surmounted, but he can no longer schedule appointments and advocate for himself with our overwhelmed medical community. If we press him on it, he gets defensive. He doesn't seem to want to talk about his medical problems, and he doesn't understand the burden he's placing on his son to medically advocate for him, a role he also held on behalf of his mother as she battled MS. My husband, age 40, lost the last few years of his mom's life to a horrible disease. Now he's losing the last few years of his dad's life to indifference and depression. Should we keep pushing dad to get medical attention? Should we keep dragging him to appointments and nagging him about it? Or should we just let him give up? Signed, Roadblock in Minnesota. Abby's response. It is important that your father-in-law be evaluated not only for depression, but also for dementia. His mental ability in the areas of working memory, flexible thinking, and self-control, skills he needs to manage his daily life, appear to have become impaired. His doctor needs to be made aware of what is going on. If you and your husband can confirm the reason this is happening, you may have the solution to your problem. And now we move to the other advice column. Uh, Dear Amy, for over 15 years, we have lived next door to our wonderful neighbors. We're great friends with the parents and have been blessed to watch their three children grow up. We count all five of them as family. All of their children, now teenagers, are good kids and good students. Over a year ago, we noticed that one of the teens has started vaping. We strongly suspect that the parents are unaware. 
Our houses are close enough that we can see this young person vaping most evenings after dinner in one of their upstairs bathrooms while leaving the shade open. Now that the days are shorter, it's even easier to see since this kid turns the light on in the bathroom, opens a window, vapes, and blows the smoke out. We know from personal experience what smoking can lead to, and we know that today's va flavored vaping products are designed to attract kids. We also know that both parents are 100% anti-smoking. We are torn as to whether we should tell the parents about this, thereby ratting on the young person who trusts and respects us, or asking this kid to pull the shade down every night, in which case the kid will know we know what's going on, which might inspire him to quit. Our own adult children in their 30s, home over Thanksgiving, reported that they noticed this teen vaping and that they were appalled. Our adult child, whom this teen reveres, wondered if they should talk to the team, but ultimately didn't do so. What do you think we should do? Sign, concerned friends or nosy neighbors? And there, Amy's response, Surely you are not so removed from your own experience when your kids were teens that you have forgotten how important the village was to raising them. Parents, especially close friends and neighbors, rely on one another to rat out the kids. It's part of the deal. Underage drinking, sneaking out to a party, cutting school, these are all examples of teen behavior that warrant a thoughtful, not judgmental, parent-to-parent -parent report. You've been watching this vaping for over a year. Talking directly to the teen would force the vaping into the basement or the other side of the house. The parents would never learn about it. The teen would continue to vape and would likely also avoid you for the next decade or so. Nicotine is addictive and buying and possessing nicotine products is illegal under the age of 18. Note that this young person could be vaping any number of non-nicotine products. Tell the parents one time and let them decide what to do. Even if they respond defensively to you, this is something they should know about. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, December 29th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. 
approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK, When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.